electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast, the regional route. More troubles for PacWest and a potential partnership between regionals and Blackstone. What the latest headlines could mean for bank stocks and the broader markets. Plus, Google Glory, Alphabet adding $115 billion to its market cap in just the last two days. Has the company behind Bard officially taken the lead in the AI race? And later, Tesla gets its CEO back. Twitter gets its CEO back. Oh, Tesla do too. Bonus for both Bonus. of them. Disney, Disney's ripple effects and two crypto-related stocks moving in vastly different directions. We're diving into all those trades. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site in the heart of Times Square on the desk tonight. Bono and Eisen, Dan Nathan, Guy Dami, and Julie Beal. We start off with the latest developments on the debt ceiling. Kayla Tausche has confirmed that the meeting between principals scheduled for tomorrow has been postponed. Let's get to Kayla for all the details. Kayla? Well, Melissa, that news coming late this afternoon after the market closed that the principals had all agreed to postpone the meeting for sometime early next week, according to a White House official. It's expected to take place before the president departs for Asia on Wednesday. And it comes after top staff, including the White House head of legislative affairs, Louisa Terrell, who you're looking at here on the Capitol staircase, met with uh, congressional staff for more than two hours today on Capitol Hill to try to hammer out exactly where some middle ground might be on spending cuts and permitting reform to reach a potential deal to avert a default at the end of this month. A source familiar with the matter says that the postponement should not be read as a negative development, but instead should be read as as a positive, that staff will continue working again tomorrow, they'll continue these conversations through the weekend, and that it just simply wasn't the right time for principals to get back into the room until there's more of a formative agreement that can be discussed. So that is the read on the postponement here. But of course, Melissa, it comes with less than three weeks before that June 1st date at which the Treasury Department says is the earliest that the U.S. could be unable to pay its bills. We will see what negotiators can come up with in the coming days and whether it's enough to stave that off. Melissa. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche. When the news crossed in the green room, uh, Bonoan and I were chatting and, and you, I immediately said it looked like a negative. But you said maybe it's a positive. Yeah, and I was hesitant to disagree with you because, you know, as we know, you know, there's not much upside in doing that. And the information you have is absolutely incredible. With that said, with that said, I mean, I was I was somewhat hopeful that, listen, I think what's been priced in, particularly if you look at the short term treasuries, what's priced in is that these people are going to continue to be at odds and they're going to take this to the brink. And what I was saying was that perhaps they're actually going to go back and come forth with something a bit more meaningful and actually move the ball forward, actually finding someone of, of a resolution. Yeah. It's interesting. I thought the same thing, the icebreaker thought, that it was actually on the margins of positive. And I'm one to always look I guess I'm just a Debbie Downer <laughs> at the here. negative. No, you're not. You're not. Because the need, that is the logical thing. But just let me throw this in. Again, we're not a political show here. But if you watch some of the um, commentary out of former President Trump last night, they talked about the debt ceiling. And I'm paraphrasing now. I want to be careful. But he said, you know what? Default. Why not? Let's see what happens. Maybe it won't be as bad as everyone seems to think. And that could resonate with some of the fringe groups that are going to push back on McCarthy and see. So 
Today's events, I think, were a positive, but some of the things I heard last night, not so much. Yeah, and I just think about it in, in terms of what's priced in. So you just mentioned the Treasury market. And again, we've seen yields come down a bit because I think that that is one place that people think is a safe haven. I know that seems kind of maybe counterintuitive if you think if we were to default. Um, but when I think about the stock market and we've talked about this VIX that is very near 52-week lows, it doesn't seem like there's anything priced in to the equity market. We see this S&P 500 that just literally looks flatlined in and around this 41 30 level, and I say, okay, if there was something that was incrementally positive that maybe came out and maybe gave us a sense that it wasn't going to go to the brink, where does the S&P go? You know what I mean? Like, does it gap up 1%, 2%? Is it 3%? Do we get back above those February highs? And then do you sell them there? Because literally, you know, if you look under the hood of what's going on in the equity markets here, it's still that concentration of those big names. And even with Microsoft, you know, rocketing up and Apple rocketing up after their earnings and a handful of other big names, we're still below those February second highs. We're still in this really tight range. So I think if there was any incrementally positive news and we did gap, I'm not sure that sets the stage for a sustainable rally. So any pop would just be that. I think it gets sold. Yeah. Uh, Remember what happened around 2011, the last debt ceiling. The S&P 500 lost 16% in a span of 10 days, 10 trading days, Julie. I mean, we're, as Dan had mentioned, we're just not priced for that when it comes to the VIX. Yeah, not at all. It sort of feels like when you talk to investors about what's going on in Washington, it's sort of like they're watching a little league game. They don't take it super seriously. And I I think it has really critical implications. And I don't think it's actually binary in terms of the long-term implications. I think further dragging it out diminishes how people view the strength of the U.S. dollar as a safe haven. And I think that has ripple implications longer term. Uh, Meantime, let's move on here. A report from the FT says Blackstone is in talks to potentially partner with regional banks to help with loan originations. For more on what what that could look like in the health of the industry, we're joined by David Conrad. He's a large cap and super regionals banking analyst at KBW, which is a Stiefel company. Great to have you with us, David. First, I wanted to ask you about um, what the FDIC came out with in terms of of, um, the fees that will be charged to banks to cover the insurance fund there and where it would have the most negative impacts. I imagine the large banks... Not much of an impact, but there's probably a middle ground which would see an actual impact on earnings. Yeah, I I think it's pretty manageable. Um, We just kind of did the math uh, recently. You know, actually, my coverage, I think, is is paying about 75 percent of uh, the total fees. But it looks to be around 4 percent dilutive to EPS um, each of the next in 24 and 2025. Embedded in our estimates, we kind of estimated it would be 3 percent. So relative to our expectations, it was pretty close and pretty manageable. I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were also uh, when it comes to where we are in this crisis. I mean, it, it feels like it's stabilizing according to, I mean, if you take the word of a lot of officials out there, it, you know, it's, it's contained. But if you take a look at how the regional banks are trading, it is not. And when you take a look at what PacWest yeah. said just a few days ago, on 5-4, March 4th, it said the bank has not experienced any out-of-the-ordinary deposit uh, flows following the sale of First Republic. Then today it says deposits declined by 9.5%. This is a matter of, of right. a few days here. <laughs> um, and that's how quickly the yeah. situation can change. So how do you sort of assess where we are right now, David? Well, a couple things here. I mean, unfortunately, social media uh, has had a, a big influence on, on some of the deposit flows here, and, and that kind of happened. Um, PacWest also announced that they were exploring strategic alternatives 
perhaps a sell of the company, sell of assets, and all that really created another kind of contagion in the, in the stock. You know, with the stock down, you know, at a $4 handle, uh, things are very fluid there. But I think today was really, really important in the sense that Western Alliance uh, was actually flat for the day. And those two stocks have really moved in tandem uh, with, with kind of this contagion. And the fact that Western Alliance came out and said, actually, our deposits are growing, uh, and that stock was, was flat while uh, PacWest was down 25%, to me, that tells me we're kind of getting a little bit more firm fit, footing in the group. David, from, it seems to me that this is a stock thing. It's not, it doesn't seem systemic in so much it's going to derail the economy. It's not a leverage thing. But... If credit is more difficult to attain for small and medium-sized businesses whose lifeblood are these small and regional banks, that's going to have a huge effect on the economy at some point. It's not tomorrow, but it's in the weeks and the months to come, I would think, because as these banks sort of fall by the wayside, and listen, I don't think we're anywhere near being over, the bigger banks will get the deposits. The bigger banks don't necessarily have all that interest in servicing these things, and it's going to be more expensive for people to do business. Thoughts on that? No, I, I think that's right. I, I think, you know, kind of a segue into the Blackstone article, you know, looking at, you know, we, we did a report that said banks around 80 billion to around 200 billion are really kind of in no man's land. Um, they have most of the new regulations hitting them. Um, when you think about the higher capital standards that are facing some of these banks and wells, and more importantly, the increased liquidity coverage, um, we do think there is going to be somewhat of a credit crunch. Uh, we've taken out buybacks and loan growth across the majority of the super regional banks. So which banks could you see Blackstone wanting to partner with? What kind of bank? I mean, ultimately, yeah. is it going to be Blackstone to the rescue here for, for some of them? Well, listen, I mean, the shadow banking and the alt uh, alt managers have, have been around for a while. Uh, they, they've seen extraordinary growth in private credit. Um, it's actually worked. It, it's not a zero-sum game. They've actually worked together with the banks. And I think with these increased capital and liquidity, you know, banks have to readjust their capital allocation. And so I think it's going to be more and more difficult. Historically, the insurance companies have bought a lot of commercial real estate. That's a little bit of a tougher proposition right now. I think they're probably near their limits there, where I think there could be an opportunity on the consumer side. Um, we've seen a lot of super regional banks, you know, fifth, third regions, um, Citizens Financial are starting to shed the auto book um, with, with given the risk-adjusted returns. And so I think they're looking to unwind some auto. They're also growing point-of-sale finance, home improvement businesses, but that growth is so rapid, it's really challenging for them to portfolio it all. So I could look to some of those asset classes uh, being you know, partially moved uh, with Blackstone and into the insurance business. I mean, they also have accounting issues with those businesses. The Cecil accounting makes it very dilutive to grow those businesses up front. You know, tying that together with Goldman's announcement that they might look for a sale for Green Sky, all mm -hmm. that kind of fits together to those home improvement loans. Yeah, I mean, taking a, a longer term look at this whole thing, David, I mean, do you think one of the lasting impacts of this all of this credit crunch that is on us that's about to come and get uh, tighter uh, is is this move into private private credit becoming even bigger? And so that will take on more of the risk in the system as opposed to the banks doing it. I think that's right. And I think that makes us feel better about the banks in terms of their credit quality near term. But that is a systemic risk in its itself, and I don't think banks will be immune. 
if there is a downturn in the in, in the private shadow banking market in terms of credit, I think that it'll all be kind of tied together a little bit. But the direct exposure for banks, you know, is actually pretty modest. I mean, the the shadow banking market has about 85% of the leveraged lending market uh, there. So that's an idea of kind of the risk that's off the bank's balance sheet. Um. David, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. David Conrad, KBW, a Stiefel company. Um, Julie Beal, how do you feel about that? <laughs> it, it seems like the risk is still out there. It's just not born on the bank's balance sheet. It's somewhere else in the economy. And the biggest problem is we have absolutely no visibility into it. It's really hard to have any kind of guess what 11 years of 0% interest rates are. My, you know, my gut says you can't have a kind of sugar rush like that and not expect there to be a real tummy ache. And I'm really concerned because I don't think it just gets isolated to these shadow banks, these hedge funds that have been, you know, not just doing these credit loans, but also putting leverage on top of them. But they have counterparty risk with the bank. So I, I don't think it gets isolated. And so that's that's the real concern is, is what the contagion looks like when some of that commercial real estate really starts to come due. Yeah, I think this makes a lot of uh, a lot of sense from Blackstone's point of view. For one, it allows them to like kind of source incremental fee revenue, right? And they've had a bit of a tough time. They also have had a bit of a bit of a struggle when it comes to their um, commercial real estate portfolio. But keep in mind that they are also the largest institutional player on the residential single-family rental space. So for them to essentially be able to kind of reinject capital into a regional banking situation that has come under pressure and also affect some of the assets that they hold, I think it makes a lot of a lot of sense, particularly when they're going to be able to pick up increments or fee yield along the way. Yeah, it's interesting. Julie just used the term visibility. When you think about it, it's just not the regionals. You know, we've spent a lot of time talking about some of these regionals that have seen their equity decline 90 some percent and then basically go to zero. But there's some other ones that act really poorly. USB is a $44 billion market cap that's down 44 percent just in the last you know few months or so. And then I think about what this means. We have a slowing economy. I think that's very clear. I think all the credit issues that we're talking about are only going to slow that further. When you think about increased regulation, that's happening. We heard Jamie Dimon yeah. speaking to that today. It just doesn't seem like a great place where there's a lot of visibility in, in and around any of these very financialized companies or so. So to me, I just still don't think they look compelling. And a lot of them just act really poorly for no good reason. And not just the regionals. If you look at Wells Fargo, if you look at Bank America, you look at Schwab, and I know that's not a money center bank, but they're trading very near the lows of this whole period, and they don't feel like they're about to get resolved right now, and they are not supposed to be at the eye of this storm either. Bank of America, oh, sorry, go ahead, No, no, I was going to say, how about uh, J.P. JP Morgan? Well, they're going to win to this without question. No, I mean, you're seeing it, whether they acknowledge it or not. I mean, this is a great, deposits are flooding in. does that mean the stock is is going to do No, I don't necessarily think, and, you know, Dan mentions, but, Bank of America is a quarter of a trillion dollar company, which is within earshot of its not only 52-week low, but multi-year low. That's telling you something as well. So to think this is over just hat in hand and say, you know what, we're through it. We're not through it. The stocks are telling a story. All right. Well, speaking of shares of J.P. Morgan, they are breaking even on the year, far outpacing the broader group. But our next guest says the good times may not last. Let's go off the charts with Chris Verona Strategis, a Baird company. Chris, what are you looking at? Hey, Melissa. Yeah, well, I think the big question that we're dealing with is, can you have a directional bull market in stocks when the banks are just simply not on the playing field here at all? And, you know, we keep hearing that, well, the deposits will go to the big banks, the big banks will be all right. But the big bank charts aren't particularly good. And if you look at the broader sector, asset managers are weak, investment banks are weak, 
brokers are weak. So I think this is getting, in some respects, worse, uh, not better. Uh, let's start with the biggest one, uh, J.P. Morgan. And the question we have is, is it naive to think that J.P. Morgan can get through this entire crisis unscathed? It's been bouncing between this you know, 130 to 140 level for the better part uh, of the last month or two. It's flat on the year, I think up 1%. I'm a little bit reminded in 2008, if you remember, J.P. Morgan was the last uh, bank chart to break. It actually was up on the year through about October, and it went last. So they tend to get to the best ones last. I think it's naive to think that J.P. Morgan gets through this unscathed when all of its friends, as Dan and Guy say, and I agree, are on or near their 52-week lows. Let's go look at Bank of America, sitting right on this 27 level. It actually made new relative price lows versus the S&P today, so there's been no relative uh, improvement there. This 26-27 zone is major, major support. I, I do not think we want to see what happens uh, underneath that. Um, you go to some of the brokers. Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs uh, are, are right on their lows here as well. Um, Goldman down something like 8-9% uh, this year. So I think the picture is more than just regional banks week. And when I see Goldman soft, when I see Bank of America soft, and then lastly here, I'll show you BlackRock in the asset management space. And the reason we pay so much attention to BlackRock, of every stock in the S&P 500, it has the highest correlation to the S&P itself. BlackRock should look like the index. It is the index. It's a top three holder in 99% of U.S. listed names. It should look like the index. It doesn't here. Uh, right back uh, on the lows here. So I think there's something else going on. We did some work today looking at the last 100 years, right? We are seven months off the October S&P low. Banks right now are down 20 over that seven-month stretch. It's the first time in 100 years being seven months off the low where the bank stocks uh, are actually down. Um, so I think you got to be careful here. Chris Bonowin here. Thanks so much for your work. Always appreciate it. A quick yeah. question. Do you think that there's anywhere within the financial services complex where one can find relatively, relative safe, safety or outperformance, or would you just avoid that sector altogether? I mean, I think that's a hard question. You know, something that we always preach in our work is you want to have the wind at your back. You want to be swimming downstream. I just think it's too hard to pick the one or two or three names in the sector that that might work here. I mean, I guess you could say stuff like insurance brokers are generally one of the better parts of the group, but you know, even just insurance at large is deteriorating here. Look at some of these life insurers. I mean, Met has broken, Prudential uh, has weakened here as well. So, you know, w what I think is framed as an issue with just community or regional banks, I think misses the point that the entire sector seems infected with whatever disease is out there. So, Chris, I mean, going back to that BlackRock S&P chart, is it safe to yeah. assume that it looks like the S&P will go lower then? Uh, that would be our bet. Uh, I don't okay. know if it's from here or if it's from a higher level, but I'm not convinced that we're through uh, all of the drama here. I don't know if we have to go back to the October lows. What was that, 3490, 3500? But there does seem to be stress under the surface. I, I just don't think the index is telling the whole story here. Um, you have S&P you know, roughly at the year-to-date highs. You have NASDAQ roughly at the year-to-date highs. Um, the number of stocks making new highs is abysmal. right? So under the surface, um, this is a very different market than I think the indexes lead on. Yep. Chris, thanks. Good to see you. Chris Verone. Thank you. Of Strategus. Dan? 
Well, yeah, I, I mean, I like Chris's work, too, and I, and I think he really kind of lays it out. I mean, I think there are a handful of stocks that are in a bubble. I don't mean they're like bubble. This AI thing, it's a moment in time. We've been in this business for a long time. We can remember these sorts of periods. I can't remember it, though, when it's been concentrated in so many big names, and that's what it's doing to the indexes right now, okay? You just said this in the lead-up to the show. Google just gained $100 billion in two yes. trading days for no good reason. Now, you could have said in January when it lost $150 billion, it shouldn't, dollars, it shouldn't have lost it either. But right now, that's all sort of working together. And the piling in the big names on a day like today, when under the surface, energy's bad, materials bad, financials are bad, the Russell 2000 small caps are bad. They're really masking, I think, a lot of really poor behavior that's probably more reflective of what's going on in the economy than what's going on in 10 stocks, mega cap tech stocks in a bubble right now. All right, coming up, Disney losing its magic and the media giant's woes sending ripples throughout the industry. The earnings hangover that had investors letting it go. But first, a new chief tweeter, Elon Musk teasing a new CEO for the social media company, what the C-suite changes will mean for Twitter and for Tesla. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Elon Musk has found a new CEO for Twitter. The billionaire didn't give a name, but tweeted just about an hour ago that she would mm. start in about six weeks and that he would transition to the role of executive chairman and chief technology officer. Shares of Tesla jumping on this news as investors hope that Musk will be able to turn his attention back to the EV maker. Guys, should we be happy? Should Tesla shareholders be happy? In the short term, I think yes, mm -hmm. because I think the negative case for Tesla is he's taking his eye off the ball. Twitter's been too much. He's, he's not focused enough on Tesla. The stock is traded in kind. So the knee-jerk reaction is higher. It makes sense, and we're a level where it should bounce. Who's the person coming in, though, for Twitter? I mean, and I, I have people tweeting at me. Does it matter? Sheryl Sandberg, that's a name. Marissa Meyer, maybe that's a name. I don't necessarily know if it matters. Mm. The Twitter problems seem to be pretty substantial. If, if Twitter were a publicly traded company, we would care. Unless you think that the person is, is in, incompetent, in which case Elon Musk will be sucked back into Twitter, and so then you again lose the CEO of Tesla. Look at you. Look at you. But I don't know. Do you have any hot takes, Dan, on uh, who um, she might be? 
not really. I, Cheryl's not taking that job. I mean, like, first of all, that, per, that person's a puppet, okay? That person is not a real CEO. Remember, he wholly owns this company, and he's on the hook for, you know, probably still $12 billion um, in debt for it. So that person's going to be doing exactly what he wants to be doing. And I do think the knee-jerk reaction in Tesla makes some sense. Is a huge overhang that he is, like, spending his nights on a cot in the Twitter headquarters and trying to retool something that, you know, frankly is over. It's done. Twitter's dead. Put a fork in it. Mm. Uh, Julie? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's interesting if we if you think about Twitter overall, right, it's not just that it has to work. It's because these major debt payments, they are connected to Tesla stock, right? The value of Twitter is actually connected to the value of Tesla stock. So if Twitter starts to really flail as it has, or I should say continues to flail as it has, it actually has an impact for Tesla shareholders because he's going to have to sell more of his stock in order to make the debt payments. So I actually think they're still very much interlinked. Again, I totally agree this is going to be a puppet. And I, but I just think that it's, it's naive to think, oh, like it's all clear, like he's going to be focusing on Tesla and we have nothing to worry about. He's still focused on Tesla. He changes the price like every other day. Like he's definitely still working out there. Bonoin. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think on the surface, right, I, I think a lot of times Tesla, particularly when you see news, it's like a headline-driven, I think Dan mentioned like a mania type of driven or profit, profit type of driven. Uh, you called it a cult, if I remember correctly, on perhaps one of our no, shows. No, no, no. Right? I just, I, I, oh, well, hold on. I, in and around, no, but I know you're mischaracterizing what I'm saying. I, I've said that around Elon, not about Twitter. My, my apologies. Twitter. My point is, I think a lot of times the share price reacts off of things that aren't necessarily material to the company when it pertains to operations. So I think Elon has always been involved when it comes to when it comes to Tesla. Again, apologies, Dan. Mm-hmm. I think now the headline does definitely give a, a bit of a lift because the perception is that he's now spending the time that I would argue and purport that he already was spending. Uh, the guy is laser focused on what he's doing, but I do think this at least gives some reprieve to the pressure that's been on the stock. All right, coming up, a Disney drag. Shares dropping as its streaming choices irk investors. More on the subscriber slump next. Plus, Google gains shares staying strong as investors pile in more after yesterday's big developers conference. The massive market cap jumps straight ahead. You're watching Fast Money live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Back right after this. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks closing mix after this morning's producer price index came in below estimates. The Dow dropping more than 220 points. The S&P posting a small loss, but the Nasdaq eked out a small gain. It is now up four of the last five sessions. China Tech, some of the day's biggest winners. JD.com jumping 7% after an earnings beat. Alibaba on deck to report next Thursday, gaining nearly 6%. Disney, though, extending its post-earnings decline today, dropping nearly 9%, logging its worst day since last November. Shares of Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount also taking a hit, while Comcast and Netflix came out ahead. So what should we make of this ripple effect for the streamers, Julie? You know, I think it's interesting because much of the commentary is around uh, the subscriber growth really not being there. 
But if you look at other operating metrics like their free cash flow, they're actually in pretty good shape. And, you know, as an investor, I love hearing any kind of discussion about returning to better profitability. I think everyone is waking up and realizing that the economics of streaming are rough and they're particularly rough for Disney to the extent that they can find synergies with Hulu. I think that's a positive for them. And, you know, it helps them decide if they're going to maintain that stake in that. Not a great quarter. I mean, that goes without saying. And last quarter on CNBC's Fast Money 5 became Eastern Time. Great show. We talked about when the stock went from 103 to 122-ish in the after. We said you can't cost cut your way to prosperity. And the stock was probably too high at that point. That proved to be correct. Tom Rogers, stud, by the way, talked about similar at the time. Now it's at interesting levels. Here's the problem. Analysts still are offsides in terms of their price target. The average price target out there, according to facts, that's about 128 or so. That's got to come down almost by definition. So as that starts to get ratcheted down, maybe take a look at the stock. But to me, it's still a bit of a value trap here. I mean, the way the stocks move today in this space, does that tell you a story that, you know, Disney, Warner Brothers, Paramount, they're the ones that are going to be under under duress in Comcast and Netflix have stuff going well, for them. I think you can actually broaden it out beyond just the media companies. If you look at what Airbnb had to say, and, and if you want to just think about consumer spending, if you heard what PayPal had to say, and, and the very largely discretionary, and what they were seeing, those were all three 10%-ish post-earnings drops on disappointments. And I really feel like, you know, we talk about earnings season all the time, and it's fascinating, you know, because you get this tremendous insight all at once, you know what I mean, from a, a disparate amount of companies. But if you kind of make it into a bit of a mosaic here, it's telling you something at the end of this earnings season um, that was being, you know, w- was really being discounted, I think, in the beginning of the earnings season. It, it, I don't think we're coming out of this in a better place than we were uh, three weeks ago. Yeah, honestly, I was a bit surprised by the price action with Disney. Like, I I was talking to a guy about this earlier. I said, what did we think Bob Iger was going get to in, get in there and do? We knew he was going to come in there and cut costs. We knew that there was going to be a pullback in terms of marketing spin. We knew that he wasn't going to pursue um, Disney Plus growth at, at, at all costs. So uh, for me, uh, for me, this is a bit of a right-sizing. Now, I, I, I'm with you guys. There's an argument to be had that because you're not seeing that same growth in streaming, that it probably shouldn't be trading at the multiple that it's trading at. To me, that's really the, that's really the crux of the argument. But to be surprised that there's been all this pullback in terms of spin, to me, was not surprising at all. Coming up, Alphabet still shining on the back of its developers conference yesterday. More on Google's AI game plan when Fast Money returns. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Alphabet well in the green for a second day, jumping another 4% after yesterday's 4% gain. Google yesterday announced new AI integrations with its search and cloud products that could give the company an edge against Microsoft. Alphabet adding $115 billion in market cap in just the past two days. Is this a bubble, Dan? Or is this just what should have happened all along? No, I, I think it's a near-term bubble. I think there's very few investable sort of things right now in mega cap tech. When you think of the pull forward and the adoption of so many of these trends that had been bubbling up before the pandemic, and they've all been decelerating. All of a sudden, there's this new shiny thing now. And when you think about you know the back and forth that we've seen really between Microsoft and Google, it really is you know an enterprise company pitted against a company that serves consumers. And so that means there can be multiple winners, and it doesn't have to be right 
here right now to the tunes of hundreds of billions of dollars. Let's see how these companies integrate these technologies into their products uh -huh. and, and become more useful to their clients and therefore are able to be more accretive to their earnings. Do you think that you would think that of this as a bubble if we had accorded some value to AI or from AI into the model earlier? Because, I mean, if we think that Google or Alphabet has been working on AI for many, many years and we just have not put that into the valuation and the valuation is catching up now, then it's not necessarily a bubble. Does it bother you that all of this new valuation has come right away. Well, here's the thing. I mean, Google's multiple hasn't really expanded, even with today's move. And if you think about it, Google, Sundar Pichai said six years ago, they're an AI-first company. I think analysts and investors who know this company have been invested in it for a long time. They believe that. It's embedded into their long-term okay. growth of this company. I think with Microsoft, why it took a lot of investors off guard is that they've had this transition to this more sassy sort of model. And now, all of a sudden, there's this hope that they may be able to create, uh, gain meaningful share in search and then they're going to integrate it in the productivity tools and this and whatever. I just think that's something that is not worth betting on right here. Let's see how that plays out over the next couple of years. You take copious notes, Melissa. The audience yeah. doesn't realize that. You have reams of notebooks, notebooks with you, yeah, and you many. pay attention, which is the cheapest thing you can do. But we have actually said on the show, and Bonwin pointed this out a while ago, that they have been working on this for a long time. And actually, the trough in the stock came around the time that they had that emergency meeting mm -hmm. around all this. That actually wanted to be a huge opportunity. 120 is a level we continue to come back to. That was where we basically fell off a cliff from in August of last year. I'll say again, that's where the stock is headed, and now it's within three and a half dollars of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely buy into the argument that there's a bit of froth here, and I, but I, I'm, mm, I'm a bit hesitant to use the word bubble only because to me that implicitly states that there's like a lack of value in the underlying asset, and I don't believe that that's the case here. I think it's twofold. I think that yes. Much like the cloud was two years ago, AI is now a buzzword that leads to people piling into a stock. I think that is a rational exuberance defined. What I also think is here is that Google, Meta, and a few of these others still give you this perceived margin of safety. And so it's a two-pronged approach as to why you're seeing these stocks continue to climb higher. It's the flight to safety coupled with now this kind of burgeoning buzzword, if you will. So, so this is interesting, right, Julie? because uh, it's frothy or bubbly, whatever word you want to use, but also safety, which doesn't seem like normally, in a normal world, the two should, should, should meet, right? They should be completely different asset classes. You know, I think the thing, too, to keep in mind is, like, not all tech is created equal, and so not all tech is as durable. I would think, you know, people view Apple as being extremely durable, and the, the problem I have is that that's a consumer product company, right? It's not necessarily just a tech company. And so I, I think each of these has to be viewed independently. If you think about Google particularly, right, the biggest problem and the biggest threat to Google's business was actually regulatory for, for them, just the level of market share that they have in their beautiful search business. And so if you look at the language for which they've been talking about AI, one of their pillars is, you know, we're going to use this really responsibly and safely. And so for me as an investor, I think AI has a lot of opportunity in front of it. I don't think this is 3D printers. I don't think this is crypto. I think there's actually meaningful value here. But I think you really, it takes a lot of scale to make AI work. And so I think it makes sense. The rally makes sense. Well, options traders are betting Alphabet has even more upside from here. Mike Co has the action. Mike. Yeah, it's not too often that Tesla gets displaced as the busiest single stock option. But when you combine 
Goog and Google, the voting and non-voting share classes for Alphabet, they did manage to hit the number one slot today. Both of those two share classes trading over three times their average daily options volume. And interestingly enough, when you exclude the options that expire tomorrow, the level that both are looking for is the 120 level that Guy was just talking about. In Google, that's the voting shares. It was the May 120s that were busiest, about 34,000 of those traded for 98 cents. But it was both May and June in both of the two share classes where the 120 strike both in May and June were the busiest. All right. Mike, thank you. Mike Coe. For more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, two fintech stocks heading in different directions. The reasons behind the moves in Coinbase and Robinhood next. And throughout May, CNBC is celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage. Here's the host of the So Money podcast. What I would love for people to learn and take away from my own journey as an Iranian American is that when you stay financially curious, that's when you can actually start to build wealth. It is the ultimate foundation for getting answers and leading you down the paths that are well aligned with your goals. Welcome back to Fast Money. Two fintech names going in two different directions today. Robinhood jumping more than 6% after its earnings last night. Meanwhile, Coinbase dropping more than 3.6%. The hashtag delete Coinbase trending today amid backlash over the company referring to Pepe the Frog as a hate symbol. Uh, Dan, you said last week that you'd buy Robinhood. You'd actually self, would you rather Robinhood over Coinbase? Well, no, we were talking about the results of Coinbase. We're yeah. talking about all the regulatory overhangs. You talk about something like this, it seems like a bit of an own goal, right, to, to do something that causes that sort of um, reaction on social media. And you think about the people who are trading on Coinbase or trading on Robinhood, they're very in tune to memes. They're very in tune to companies' um, beliefs and that sort of thing. So I look at the results that Robinhood just posted, and I say to myself, well, they made more money on net interest margin than they did on trading volume. That's not a bad thing. They have a subscription product called Gold where they do daily sweeps. That that interest rate is 4.65%. They said that they had $8 billion come in as deposits for those sorts of things. So that tells me this is a company that's guiding to gap profitability at some point. They said something like, I think this looks really interesting. I think the crypto thing is just upside if it ever comes back. Um, and if they could ever restore this brand a little bit too. But to me, I think this company might be crossing the Rubicon. Last thing, $8.5 billion uh, market cap, $6.7 billion in cash. Think about that. Coin or hood? What is this Rubicon thing? Who is this person? I don't understand. When Dan, he's, he's coin or hood? I'll play the game. I'll play your reindeer game with you, hood. Because it was wasn't it last week when we played the game? What are you watching? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guy, what are you watching next week for earnings? I said hood. I said Robin Hood. And then you said to me, did you see Fast Money last night? Because Dan said the same thing. I said no. When I'm not on, I don't watch. For the same reasons that Dan just iterated, I'll say again. They're making more money, they're losing less money, which is a good sign. They're profitable probably by this time next year. I'll give you a third choice. Hood, coin, or none of the above, Bonoin. Oh, oof. Uh, I'm gonna go with none of the above. Oh. I knew you I'm would. gonna go with none of the above. And I think you guys make really compelling arguments. I mean, you look at the cash run of the two companies, Hood definitely comes out ahead there. I just think that the, the overarching macro environment is a bit challenging, and I don't really want to be at this point of the risk curve going forward. All right. Coming up, CNBC's Disruptor 50 list is out, and we are talking with the number two company on the list, the co-CEO of a fintech firm with a unique take on corporate credit cards. 
The details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back. All this week, we are highlighting this year's CNBC's Disruptor 50 companies. Today, we've got the co-CEO of number two on the list, fintech startup Brex. Brex launched with corporate cards for startups and now offers a platform to manage everything from expenses and travel costs to venture debt. Let's bring in CNBC's Julie Borson with the Brex co-CEO, Enrique Dubugras. Uh, Enrique, great to have you with us. Um, it's a disruptor list, so I got to ask you, what, what exactly are you disrupting here with, with, the, with this platform? Thank you so much for having me. So we started by disrupting corporate cards. Then we launched our business account product that, um, you know, does a lot of banking services for, for companies. And now we're just disrupting spend management. So travel and expenses. Think about replacing your Concur, your Amex, and your bank in one platform. Wow. Um, I know that on CNBC, you know, during the banking crisis, you've come on. You said that you were a beneficiary. You got a lot of deposits. And I'm wondering what you're seeing now, uh, if that has slowed down or if you continue to see those deposits go to you. Uh, we continue to see inflowing deposits. But I think that the major change that we're seeing is customers not wanting to have one bank account now, but three or more. And so we are in a position to win what we call operational spend. So now, now, not only we're managing their corporate card spend, their expense spend, their travel spend, but also all their like, uh, you know, non-card spend through their uh, banking platform and our, our business account. Uh, Enrique, I think it's so interesting to see how much you grew in the wake of Silicon Valley Bank's failure. And I'm wondering if seeing the fact that you picked up so many of those accounts, you expect to add more services to really fill the void and fill the role that SVB played so much in Silicon Valley to that startup community. Yeah, we, we definitely want to add more things around spend management. SVB did a lot around the private bank and lending and other banking services. But as I said, we're pretty focused on what we call the operational banking. So managing, paying your bills, running payroll, and kind of like more day-to-day -day activities versus you know giving you a mortgage or your private bank or other treasury activities that larger banks are better positioned for. Enrique, how does the, the banking crisis change the trajectory of your growth, if at all? I mean, does it, does it create a better environment for you to grow? Does it pull forward some of your growth? How does it impact you? Um, it's still unclear if it's going to be net negative or net positive for us. Uh, yes, we do have some benefit from the crisis, but, you know, SCB was very important for the ecosystem. But I, we have been finding it easier to acquire net new customers today uh, than we were before for our kind of like global spend platform. One thing I'm curious about, just looking at your growth in the in the wake of all those concerns about SVB uh, and the banking system as a general, as, as as sort of more generally, what do you see as the industry that you're disrupting? Are you competing with the fintechs? Are you competing with the established banking behemoths? Who who should be looking out for you coming coming after them? Yeah, I would say that um, most commonly uh, we're disrupting uh, Concur and Amex. Um, we rarely compete, you know, with other banks. I would say we work in addition to other banks. A lot of our customers have a Brex account, uh, but also maybe a JP Morgan or a Wells Fargo account in addition to us. So think of us as we're paying your bills, we're running your credit cards, we're doing your expenses, but you can still hold a lot of your money wherever you feel more comfortable with. Enrique, great to speak with you. Congratulations on landing number two on this list. 
Thank you so much for having Enrique me. Enrique Dubagras of Brex. And thank you, Julia Borston, for this interview, as well as the entire Disruptor 50 list. What, what a franchise this is. Um, what do you make of this? You follow a lot of fintech. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's a great question you asked. Like, who, who are you disrupting? And right now, it seemed that, you know, a few years ago when companies like this could do no wrong, right? And this is a great company. They offer a great platform. You know, it's two-pronged. It's a, it's a you know, they're, they're going after the incumbents. But then there's also a lot of these other bigger fintechs that have been more established. And so, uh, and then and there's like he just mentioned Amex, you know, so to me, I think it's really interesting. I think all this competition leads to better innovation is going to be better for customers in general. Yeah. I mean, in terms of um, the markets here, it's interesting. A fintech used to be the hottest mm-hmm. thing in terms of valuation, it's sort of working against them. And then you have the traditional payment companies that are really doing quite well. Uh, a visa. Can I make one thing? Yes. The other day, um, PayPal, remember it's down? And yes. I said, just buy it. And I bought some at 68. It closed at 75 that day. I bought a little more at 64. My average is 66. Not going well. It's trading at five-year lows. I'm just saying, like, and, and I wanted to take a shot. It's a cheap stock right now, mm-hmm. but it's really out of favor here. And some of the ones, I guess you want to pay up for uh, rather than the value traps. That's like it. A pay up for like a, a what? What would you pay up for? Well, I mean, I, I think uh, in the fintech space, listen, I, I still think PayPal is one that like that I like. Um, as it pertains to this company here, one thing that I do like is that they don't have the balance sheet risk. So we were talking about like the shadow banking situation. We talked about you know how market share had been kind of leached away from the traditional banking industry and what defaults and credit erosion might mean for the overall uh, econ- economic backdrop, particularly the regional banking situation. I think a company like this that's able to kind of process payments or, or, or run your corporate spin for you, but doesn't have the inherent balance sheet risk is is something that's probably going to be attractive in an environment now where you've seen VCs pull back so much because of the carnage that's happened over the last 12 months. So I, this is something that I think sets up well. What's old is new. Look at the move that Visa's had over the last six or so weeks, pushing up towards the all-time high I think we made in the summer of 2021. Very quietly, nobody's talking about it, but as it turns out, I mean, the greatest fintech company maybe in history are names like Visa and MasterCard, ironically enough. Yeah. Julie? I totally agree. You know, that's what happens when you are in a duopoly. It's a beautiful business and you can quietly make a ton of money. But, you know, I think Brex is interesting because if you think about who they're trying to displace, Concur, I mean, we use Concur. It is easily some of the worst software I've ever seen. And I love having a weak competitor like that to, to be taking over. The question really is, is how much corporate spend is going to happen if we're in a downturn? Yep. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Julie Beal. You know, I like facts that with the VIX as low as it is, I want some durable earnings. Bono and Eisen. Well, Julie and I segue. Speaking of the VIX being as low as it is, VIX call spreads. Dan Nathan. I like Faxet. I like VIX. You like everything. And, and I also it's like the TLT good. breaking out. Guy Dami. I like the fact that Tom Cruise is watching it. I didn't know that Definitely for a fact. Watching. I know. Hi, Tom. So, see? Yeah, now you say hi to him. Look at Netflix. Disney's loss is Netflix game. All right. Thank you for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries 
stories warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.